I'm, I'm reading from Exodus chapter 21, and I'm just calling today's message, I'm just calling it my house. I, I had all kinds of things like my castle, um, the ox goring. I had lots of different options for this. But we're looking at different laws. And when I'm looking at the laws that are given to the children of Israel, the, the, there's always the, the there, there's several ways of looking at it. One hand, me, one part of me, because of where I come from, I look at the laws, and then I think about trying to enforce those laws, and I think, man, that is one controlling group of people because they have all these laws, right? And then I have to look deeper and say, but this is the heart of God is to protect somebody. He's trying to protect the innocent. He's trying to protect someone. So who is God trying to protect with any given law is a huge question because we've lost track of that in our modern days is we'll, we'll, for, we'll forget that a law was put in place or that a, a moral issue has someone that it's trying to protect or exploit. And so what has happened multiple times in just our American history is there will be some law that will be brought, suggested to Congress or the Senate, and it'll be pushed through. And then years later, we discover, ah, this legislation was very, very, very favorable to this corporation or to this whole set of, of businesses or, or this whole area of, the, of, of, of our economy. And at the time, we weren't told that. That wasn't what it was sold as. It was sold as this is what we're trying to do or protect. And there was somebody underneath working to, to do something else. And so I was reminded of that, that the human nature continues constantly with um, that kind of a, uh, where we put up one front and there's something else that we're trying to gain. And so like, you know, most of the time, um, like even in the case last week when I was talking about the slavery, the kidnapping that happened in 1840 uh, or 41 with um, Solomon when he was being uh, taken into slavery, 12 years a slave, they didn't come to him and just kidnap him outright or say, hey, we're here to kidnap you. They came and they sold him a different bill of goods. They lied to him and then they switched it later and, and he was lied to, deceived, and then ended up in slavery. And so that's the, the issue with much of what happens with humanity is we always try to put our best face forward. We try to make something look good, even if it's for selfish ends. And this is, this is important as believers to realize that our own heart can be so deceptive because we will put our best face forward, but inside we really desire something else. And so I think of this in my own relationships when I'm interacting with people. Am I in a relationship because I'm trying to exploit you to get something out of you for my benefit? Or am I just literally there and allowing God to flow through me, God to flow through you, and we get together and we are mutually encouraged because there's a big difference in those two things. And I will just say, there have now been numerous times in my life where I met someone in a place where we had a mutual interest or a mutual sometimes family or relationship. We started conversation and things got really interesting. I thought I would love to follow up with this person. And they kept, you know, they said, let's follow up and we follow up and we, and somewhere in the second or third meeting, I realized they're trying to get me into their, um, sometimes it's multi-level marketing. Sometimes it's just to hire me into their company or something. And they don't actually like me for me. They just looked at me and said, that's a good prospect. 
let's do what we can to get him into our camp. And so occasionally that has been into a religious or doctrinal camp. Occasionally that has been into a, an actual, like a, a, you know, bricks and mortar type of business, you know, something that I could look at. And sometimes it's just an organization that, that entirely depends on the network of many, many people being involved. And I, I have a very clear calling and I have a very clear uh, business that I'm supposed to be doing. Now, sometimes it's doing great financially, sometimes it struggles, but I know what I'm supposed to be doing with my time. And so I'm not the 18-year-old who has no idea, and some 18-year-olds actually do have good ideas of what they're supposed to be doing, but I'm not that person just out of high school going, I don't know what I should do, and you come along and say, hey, have I got an opportunity for you? No, I'm already established. They look at the performance or whatever I'm doing and say, you know what he could do? And this is literally what will happen is, um, I've had multiple people tell me this, and it's basically like, you know so many people because you're a pastor and you're in ministry, and so just think how many, how many things you could sell. I'm like, that is, to me, that would be exploiting my friendships. Now, if there is something that I'm looking at going, hey, this is really good, I'm willing to share it with my friends. But I don't want to be brought in to an organization purely to exploit my hard-won relationships that I already have. When I make a movie, I expect that there will be quite a few people who know me that want to buy that movie. So I'm not afraid to share with you things that I've done and made, but there is a slight difference here. If I'm being recruited purely because of those relationships versus being encouraged to keep doing what God has called me to do, and out of that flows the provision. There's a difference here. And you, you probably know what I mean. You've probably been approached at different times. And so, sometimes it's a product or a company where I'm like, that is really cool. I could totally see myself doing that. I would like to do that. But most of the time, the ones that, that I'm talking about, the way it escalates, I don't see it coming. And then I'm blindsided for whatever reason. It's happened to me multiple times in my life already where I'm just like, are you serious? This is what this is about. One happened just recently. And so there is a certain level that I understand that we need each other and we depend on each other. And like if I'm about to go buy a car or buy something tech-wise or whatever, if I can talk to you and you tell me what you're using, I want to hear it. We do that by word of mouth. We're being honest and sharing things. And so if, however... I am not actually wanting to hear from you because I want to hear from you, but I'm trying to hear from you so that you'll hear from me because I have something for you. There's just different, you, you get the idea here because there is the honest sharing of really good things and then there is the, the manipulation that sometimes ha has, that happens. And that's the unfortunate part. And so when I look at these laws that we're about to read in Exodus that were given to the children of Israel, I find here very similar things. These are laws that were designed by God to protect somebody from exploitation. At the same time, what we'll see is they were used by people to exploit others eventually. And so it becomes a, once you start getting the full grasp on how this was working, you understand some of how Christ was responding to people that knew the law in his time, in his, his day. So I want to read Exodus 21. Uh, we'll start in verse 28, and we'll go down through chapter 22, verse 15. So Exodus chapter 21, verse 28. 
Last week we read through the part about slavery. This week we start with what in my Bible is headed animal control laws. Um, and the first case is that case of the ox, which some people have said is the most discussed legal uh, animal in legal situations, just because of this ox it has like influence law everywhere, you'll see. So uh, Exodus chapter 21, starting in verse 28. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it has been made known to his owner, and he has not kept it confined, so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. So if you notice here, there's this ox. It gores a man or a woman. And if it, you know, so it's saying if, if this ox gores a man or a woman, then you shall kill the ox. However, if he's done this before in the past, you're going to stone the ox and its owner. And so suddenly now we have a serious case here where you, if you own an animal, are responsible for this animal. So what are we trying to do? We're trying to protect people. So if you have an animal that you know is wicked, is bad, that you will be held accountable for this animal. And so this is an important thought is, um, you know, as a little boy, we used to have to walk places and there were some people who had dogs and they were just scary dogs and they would not have them confined. They would not have them on chains or anything. And as you're walking by, suddenly the dog would wake up and come barking out at you. And if you didn't have a rock in your hand or a stick in your hand, it looked like it was going to eat you. If you had some weapon, he would always stay back a little ways. And so I always, I hated those houses where you'd go by and the dogs would just be outside and it just would look like they're going to rampage you, right? And so I know that from a certain perspective of independent Americanness, we're like, well, I'm going to have what I want. I'm going to have dogs on my property. I'm going to protect myself from you. But what about protecting me from you and your property? That is also part of your responsibility. That's what's here. And so, and, and the reason I bring it up is because when we look at both sides of this today, we have both the ox who gores someone. And so now what happens next here is just, is just mind bending for me to even try to put my, wrap my mind around it. This is in verse 30. It says, if there is imposed on him a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed on him. So there's something here where he doesn't have to be put to death because he can pay a fine. Um, and then it says in verse 31, whether it has gored or a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. And if a man opens, uh, so let's stop here for a moment. So he's talking about uh, male, female servants. He's talking about son or daughter. And then it gives, a, it fixes a price of 30 shekels of silver if he kills a servant, a slave. And so, you know, a few things come to mind. Like Jesus was sold for a, a servant's death rate. Like that was 30 shekels of silver is what you would pay if, if your ox killed someone else's servant. And so they weren't quite counting these servants, these slaves on the same level as a son or daughter. But the, according to the rabbis, when they would talk through this, they would come back to this ox goring thing over and over again to say, see, it says a son or a daughter. And so that means that in the, in the eyes of if you're guilty of killing someone, it doesn't matter whether you kill a man, a woman, whether it's a child, a boy or a girl, you've killed someone and it's all, you're guilty all the way, you know, you're just guilty for this. 
And for us, we would say, well, why are you making, why are you like, why are you working so hard? Because they did. The rabbis would talk about, well, what does it mean? Who's, who's, how much, what's the, what is the penalty? Like, is this a death penalty or is this a fine? Like, what is this? Because your animal has hurt someone. And so in order for us to even understand their minds, I went back looking uh, to see what in the, was in the Jewish writings. And what our biggest problem is, is that most of the Jewish writings that we have come from, say, around the year 150, uh, somewhere in that, first, that second century. And so at this point, there was a rabbi, and I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name, it's M-E-I-R, it's either Meir or Meir or Mir, but Rabbi Mir, he was, he was like, a student of someone who was a student of someone who was a student of someone who was a student of Gamaliel. Um, and so this is, his, th- so this is the, the received tradition. So this is about as close as we're going to get to what the rabbis at the time of Christ would have talked about. And so they were writing it down during Rabbi Meir's time. And he's quoted quite a bit in the Mishnah and several other places. So in the Mishnah, they, they, they start saying, well, if your ox is actually goring someone, the very first time, like how could you have known that that was gonna happen? And so if your ox gores someone three days in a row, then we know it's a bad ox and then we go on with these things. But if your ox were to gore someone once and then again, but then for three Sabbaths didn't actually gore anyone for three whole weeks, he's, he's in the clear again. You've not been forewarned. He's, he's an innocuous ox. And if, some, if he gores someone again, you're free. And so they're going through all of this. And so then a little bit later, I just want to, let me see if I can find this one because then this is in the, the Talmud is some more writings on here where they quote Rabbi Meir again, and it's in the Baba Kama 23b 16. And so it says this, Rabbi Meir says, it is deemed forewarned in any case where witness testified that it gored three times. So he's saying, you know, you, you were forewarned. If your ox, if you have witnesses, if we have enough witnesses to say that your ox gored someone for three times, then you've been forewarned and now you're responsible. He says, if you gored three times, regardless of the number of days on which this behavior occurred. And it reverts back to its previous innocuous status in any case where children pet it and play with it and it does not gore them. So, Here's the situation. You have an ox, it gets out, it's a beast, and it does things to people, and it hurts someone. But from the time this ox was a little guy, your children have taken it to pasture and done stuff with it. So these oxen are totally fine with you dealing with, with it. So the children can come and deal with it and, and give it a clean slate every time. So now technically, if your child is able to pet that ox, you can say, no, it's a fine ox, nothing wrong with this ox, not gonna hurt anyone. Even though it has multiple times tried or already hurt people. And so this reminds me of people who say about their dogs, they're like, well, my children can play with this dog all the time, what's wrong with it? And, and, and I bring this up because this is exactly the kind of conversation they would have. So these rabbis would sit around and they'd say, okay. And so they wanted to have a, they wanted to have a, a predetermined judgment for any situation that might happen. 
So they would literally talk about these things for hours on end. And so this ox situation, they would say, okay, so what about if he owns a dog? How does that work? Well, what about if he owns a snake? And so they had long conversations about what if you have a snake? And what they finally, what they decided was it doesn't matter how long you've owned a snake or there's, there's no way to make a snake be safe. If your snake kills someone, you get the death penalty. That's what they came up with. And I, I think part of that was because none of them was ever going to have snakes. Um, but so they took it over to goats because here was rabbi so-and-so. And, um, so there was a, there, there was a problem. There was a goat, what we would call a goat farm over here. And then next to it was the cabbage patch and his farm, the cabbage farm over here. And so the goats kept getting out from the goat farm and going over and eating the cabbages. And so the, the discussion was, well, who's responsible for what? And so what would happen is, and this was what frustrated Rabbi Meir's, uh, pe- the people of his time. They, they got very frustrated with him because if they came and asked him a simple question, according to the law, who is liable for these goats eating the cabbage? He would give them a whole list of reasons why the goat owner is at fault. And then he'd say, but on the other hand, Notice this phrase, on the other hand, from Fiddler on the Roof kind of situation. He says, on the other hand, the cabbage person, and he starts going, and he starts looking for all the different laws, and so they would go back to these laws and talk about the oxen and the different things, and they would extrapolate to infinity to create all kinds of applications out of anything that was here. And so they would go to the section that we're about to read about a man in his own house and the thief breaking in. And they say, well, in this case, now it's a goat who is breaking in. And so it becomes the responsibility of the owner to build a fence. And so he would go, uh, Rabbi Mir would go and just explain and explain and explain. And he could give you equally reasons why someone was guilty and why they weren't guilty. And so the, the people that would come and say, well, we don't even know what to do now. Like we just asked you a question, what does the law say about this? And because he wasn't looking for the heart of the law, he couldn't give a direct answer. He was looking for what had become popular with them, which was to take the law and, and, and extrapolate it out and, and see how many applications you can make out of this. So this whole ox goring thing just keeps being talked about over and over and applied to every single thing. And so it just keeps going on and on. And so it, it is fascinating reading because sometimes I'm reading along in here and I'm like, well, that makes a lot of sense. And then other times I'm reading and I'm going, I think you're trying to protect someone when you said that. Because in the case of the goats, if the goat farm is owned by rabbi so-and-so, and he doesn't want to take care of his own goats and doesn't want the responsibility, then the other rabbis can circle around and say, well, you know, this is why we think you should build a fence to protect your cabbage from the goats. And they will go into, you know, just on and on with the application. So if you can imagine if someone has a ox or a bull that their child takes care of, and takes it out to herd, and then it, but it keeps, anytime it gets out, it's damaging other people's property, it's hurting other people, but he's not held responsible because he just brings that ox back home, his child can walk out and pet the ox, and now the ox is innocuous again and fine. Can you imagine the frustration, the misapplication of justice this is? Where you're thinking, my neighbor has an ox, he doesn't, he's not responsible for it. All he's got is a, he's got a wild ox and a wild child, and the two of them get together, and that erases it according to the law, and now I can't do anything, and I cannot get justice here. 
So you can see how you can miscarry justice, and this is just one example of the ox. There are other ways that this goes on as we go through here. So I'm not going to explain all the things that the Mishnah and the Talmud say because I don't know that, but you can actually read it. You can get apps and download it and read it. It's a um, fascinating study. So, so what we're talking about here, though, is the fact that God actually cares for people. He wants to protect people. So if you see in the law, there is always a pattern where God is trying to protect the unprotected, protect those who are alone, protect those who are unable, the weaker one. He's always looking out for that person. And so in our day and age, we have ridiculous arguments about when does a person become a person? Is it when, they are in the, when they're in the womb, when their heart beats, when they're a fetus? What, when are they a person? And so we're doing the exact same thing with the law that is happening, what they did with the law. We're saying, well, maybe we're not guilty because this or that or the other thing. And so it, we have to understand that there is a heart that God has for people, that he is wanting to protect life. He is wanting to guard the lives of people to have a healthy respect for life. This is what God wants and desires. And so if we understand that, and then we look at law, we say, well, how can we protect life? And it changes our entire conversation about it. But when we're saying, how can we get out and around this? How can we make this where I'm not actually guilty of murder? Well, then there's many ways where we can draw the line here. We can draw the line here. We can say, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And we can have all these, these reasons and we can quote each other just like the rabbis would quote each other. Like they would, they would kind of quote a scripture, but then they would quote all these other rabbis and explain how it had been applied over here and they'd do this whole precedent thing. And so there's a lot there for us to just think about for ourselves is when someone says, are you doing the right thing? Are you hurting someone else with this? And we say, well, the reason I can do this is because one, two, and three. Um, are we looking for the loophole or are we looking for the heart of God, which is to protect the downtrodden, the weak, to rescue those who need rescuing? And within Christianity, one of the things about this is we all needed rescuing. Every one of us needed we, at least once we needed to be rescued because we needed to be saved. We needed to be born again. But most of us can look at throughout our life and say, I was victimized here. I was made a, a slave of something over here, whether it's a slave of sin or something. We all need to be rescued. We all need to be redeemed. And so we've all been in that place where we needed help to get out of a situation that whether or not we put ourselves there, we couldn't get ourselves out. And so this heart of God is, to, is for that person, the person who has been estranged and is afar off, the person who is in the pit and can't get out, the person who needs help, the person whose life is put in danger by someone else's action. This is what God wants. He wants to protect life. All right. And, and we have to do this and understand what all your life entails because right now what's happening in America is the church is being kind of torn asunder because we can't quite talk about um, what abuse really is. Like, is, is there such a thing as emotional abuse, spiritual abuse? Because um, we're willing to kind of admit to like sexual abuse is a problem, but not for us. And then we, when we try to push away all the other ways that we're hurting people. And so it's creating a, a real issue for the church because we, we're looking for the loopholes. Why am I good? Why am I fine? And, and, and like sin is not here. And we don't understand that it's important for us to say, actually, when sin is here, we need to be able to say it. There is sin in, my, in our camp. There's, there, we have a problem and we need to fix it. 
And we're looking for the heart of God that is for that person who is being uh, exploited for, and, and misused. And so with, when we look at it with that heart, we can start seeing the miscarriages of justice that are happening, and we can start coming out on the right side of justice. Now, when we do that, it often causes those who are victims to say, oh, someone is speaking for me and is actually helping me, and so then they will quiet down as long as justice is being carried out. But when justice is being stonewalled, they start going louder and louder and looking for anyone who will help them. And then we're like, why are you carrying the dirty laundry of the church to the outside to the world? The reason is because the church is not trying to take care of it. And so this is a big issue for our time and, our, and, and we have to deal with it. We can't just let it go. So we have to talk about, are we truly looking out for the best interests of each other? And it's, it's a big deal. And so as we read through the law, because um, we have this week, and we have, we have one more, well, next week I think we talk about the law a little bit, and then we go through the covenant, and then we get to the ark of the, well, th- there is a little bit more law that we'll get to. So anyway, I just want us, to, as we look at the law, because we're not in Leviticus where we're looking at all the laws, but we're seeing a, a synopsis here and there. But let's continue reading. So we've talked about the ox a little bit talked about the fact that it was 30 shekels of silver for a slave's life, the extrapolation, the application. So now we go to verse 33, uh, Exodus 21, verse 33. If a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. So in this case, the ox falls into the open pit, kills the animal, the guy who dug the pit has to pay for the ox, but then he actually gets to keep it. Now, when you keep reading, there is a huge discussion on when you're allowed to eat the ox or versus not. Like how it dies is a big deal for whether it's a clean animal or not in that case. And so there's a bunch of this stuff. So uh, verse 35, if one man's ox hurts another's, so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox shall al- they shall also divide. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in time past, and its owner has not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. Now, this was an interesting thing, because if it was known that this ox would thrust people in the past, and his ki- or other animals, and he kills an ox, then he's supposed to switch the live ox for the dead ox, but now the, new, the guy that had a perfectly good ox that's now dead suddenly has a live ox that was known to thrust in times past. So now what's he supposed to do? He's now the liability. And so when I'm looking at this, I'm like, this is just a bad deal. Like my ox got killed and now I've been given this dangerous ox. What am I going to do now? Like, can I sell it, butcher it? What am I going to do? And so it's a, it's a, it's a problem. Okay, so then... Uh, Now Exodus chapter 22, verse one, it says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So do you see this? Like if if someone steals an ox from you, they're not just supposed to, and and it's discovered, it's not just bring back the ox. Bring me back five oxen. If you stole a sheep, bring back four sheep. And so there is this idea of restitution. And so this is, I think, one of the issues that in America we've really struggled with for years is someone steals something and we put them in prison. 
and they don't pay back the other person. So now what happens with that is, is really becomes a miscarriage of justice because first of all, he stole something and it doesn't get turned back to the person out here. To the, he doesn't get that restored. But then the person that he stole from keeps paying taxes to now feed and clothe and house the thief. And so if you think about it, he's being robbed one time in a very tangible way. And then for the rest of his life, he's being robbed as long as this person's in, in prison. So it becomes a miscarriage of justice because we're missing out. What, what is God's heart here? He says, if you steal something and then you have to give it back fivefold or fourfold, you're going to think seriously the next time before you ever steal again. And so when you do restitution, when you're finished and you pay off that debt, there is a sense of, I have paid my debt, I have done the right thing, I have corrected the error that I made, and you face society, instead of being a branded and marked person, you're ready now to be an honest man and do the right thing. And it helps you be properly restored to your community and, and in relationships. So this is one of the errors that is, that is still in our prison system in America, in our justice system. We don't get this part, the importance of restitution. Restitution for the heart of God is really important. And if we could figure that out, if we could, you know, if we could figure that out, it would be awesome. Like the old English common law didn't have it right either. Like you had a debt, so they'd throw you in prison, debtor's prison. And so how are you going to pay off the debt? Well, until you pay it off, you can't get out of prison. And so now you're locked into this horrible cycle, right? And so, so there's some, from my perspective, there are some miscarriages of justice that have been around for so long that we're just used to it. But I think we could challenge those and say, we have a problem here. Let's not treat the person who steals in the same way as the person who committed a murder or who had an ox that he didn't take care of. Let's, let's differentiate and say what actually happens here, what's going on, and let's, let's actually carry out justice. Because in the, in the heart of God, he wants every man to be able to stand before his fellow man with an honest and open heart and face and, and actually be received and, and have a mutual level of respect for each other. So he wants to, those that are trampled and downtrodden, he wants to restore them to a, a respected place in community. Those who have been, who have broken the law and have mistreated their fellow man, he wants them to be properly make restitution and be properly restored. And so, right, for instance, we have this question, um, and this goes back to the earlier question in the church, like if there is spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, whatever, from church leadership of people, what happens to those people? Because the answer that we sometimes give is, well, let's just lock them away for life. And yet that bypasses something that's here. Either we look at the moral code and we say, well, they, they did something that is worthy of death, or we say, here is the path to that you need to make restitution and, rest and there needs to be restoration. And so if we talk about those things, like if you're in the middle right now, if you have someone who is an, is an abuse victim, and a lot of times if you just start talking about restoration to ministry, because this happens, people are restored to ministry, they go ballistic because what's missing? Restitution. Restitution hasn't happened. And so without any restitution being made, without any payment being made, the victim says, all you're going to do is put them in a position to do it again. And they're right. That is all we're going to do. And so this is a serious problem for the, how we carry out justice in our communities. And so these are things that are like, they're church issues, but it's places where the people of God should be influencing and informing the justice systems of our land and saying this, we need to have something that is in keeping with the sin. For instance, in 
for years, I don't know how it is now, but in Florida, um, if you were caught with child sexual abuse, you could be in prison for three years. If you evaded taxation, you were in prison for 10 years. And so it was like automatically something was really raunched. And I don't know if that ever got corrected because it was a specific kind of each one, but it was enough so that it was on the books that you could get there. And so this was the kind of thing that I'm talking about is we, we often don't think about it because if, if something happens to me, I'm like, hey, let's get justice for this. Well, what is justice? Because sometimes justice looks like I get half of a dead ox and, a, and, a, and we sell a living ox and I get half of its money back, you know? But there's something that is justice and restitution. And it has to do with restoring to me what is mine and restoring also to the perpetrator. Is it possible to restore to the perpetrator his right, his, his, a respected place in the community? Can he be restored? Well, he can't just be put there and pretended nothing happens. And this is where miscarriage of justice happens all the time. We're like, we're gonna pretend nothing happened and he's gonna go right on doing everything he's always done. And so the person that is his victim, every time he sees that, every time the victim sees the perpetrator going, I can't believe they're just letting them out here to do whatever they wanna do. This is not right. And so then out of that grows the, 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 the multiple, like if, if I think of the Me Too movement and other things where people are going, well, that's not the right way to do it. Well, sure it's not, but it wasn't also, wasn't the right, it wasn't being done the right way before then either. And so there's miscarriages happening. And these are things that we actually, as Christians and believers, now I don't want us to get into that whole thing that the rabbis got into where we're trying to have a prejudged um, solution for every problem. But I want us to be willing to engage in this conversation and to talk about these things and say, what is our part? Because there is true justice, there is restitution, there is restoration, and, and there is true there is a way to deal with everything to actually take care of the heart of God. Now it gets messy because whenever humans sin, it breaks so many things. It's not just, you don't just hurt one other person when you sin. Usually there is a whole host of people that are affected by one wrong act. And so this is, this is important for us to think about. Okay, now we come to verse two of chapter 22. Exodus 22 verse two, it says, if the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. We're gonna come back to this verse, but I want to read on down now. So listen to the different pieces. This is all dealing with property. And I'm pointing out that it's property because there's gonna be some things that we're gonna, um, yeah, okay, so let's keep going here. So if the thief, so that was verse two. Verse three says, if the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed, he should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or donkey or sheep, he shall restore double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal, and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. Verse six, if fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that stacked grain, standing grain of the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution. Which that would be an interesting thing if you remember uh, the big fire that we had in January um, with the, over here in Boulder County and how it spread through. Like they were able to trace it down and say well, someone was burning something. There was something going on over here at this place. When they can find that out, they, they 
What do they do? Like in a case like that, they don't go back and say, okay, you've got to pay for however many hundreds of houses got burned up. Like that's what this says he should do. It would bankrupt anyone. There's no way he can do that. So there would have to be a place of, well, what do you do? And so, you know, even for us, these are tough situations, but they're like, you can see if someone's just being irresponsible with fire and then it burns something that belongs to you, he's responsible and it's a problem. And so this has been an issue um, that we haven't quite known what to do with because it crosses over between, um, like if I'm doing a controlled burn and suddenly goes uncontrolled, um, now we have a problem. And so like there was an issue a number of years back on, on national forest property where the um, Bureau of Land Management was actually doing a controlled burn on a very windy day. And when the, their, their national, so there's Bureau of Land Management property and then there's, there's national forest property. And so when the, the, there was a citizen who saw it and got a hold of everyone he could and was like, there's a problem over here, they're burning and they shouldn't be burning. And by the time he gets the proper authorities on place, it's out of control and they have an actual forest fire on their hand that is not just on their land, but it's on others. And so that entire team of people that was out there got, um, I don't remember exactly what all happened to them, but several of them lost their jobs. Um, several, a number of them were fined heavily and other things like that. But because if you're part of a group and you see something happening, you're like, um, we shouldn't be doing this today. Look at how strong the wind is. Like it takes one voice of reason often to stop the madness, right? And so there is a, there is a necessity for us to be thinking of what is my responsibility here? Because this is another part that we see through these laws is there is a question of your jurisdiction and of your responsibility. You're responsible for something. What is it? Do you know what it is? Or are you assuming that it's someone else's problem? Because that's an easy place to get into is to say, well, it's someone else's issue. And sometimes you're forced into that because every time you raise the issue and say, hey, there's a problem here, someone who is in authority over you says, shut up and just be here and stop messing up. And in cases like that, when that starts happening, that needs to be addressed and said, that's a problem. If you're seeing an issue and every time you try to address it, it's just shut down, that's unhealthy. We need to be able to talk about this. And so... That's why people will leave companies. That's why people will leave churches. That's why people will leave any organization of people is if they realize that they cannot speak and be heard, then why am I even here? Because God actually has responsibility for each of us. And we see that with the children of Israel when they couldn't go into the promised land. It wasn't just the, the, the 10 spies who said it's bad over there. It was all the people who agreed with them, all the people who had an opportunity to stand up and say, no, let's go, let's do what Joshua and, Moses, uh, Joshua and Caleb said. But it took everyone, even the ones who just quietly listened, got judged. Because each of us has a responsibility. Okay, so now keep, this number seven is, a, is an interesting one. It says, if a man, this is verse seven, if a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. So that, I was like, this is one of those cases where if someone says, can I store something at your house? You have to say, well, how much, how much is it worth? Like, how, what's, the, what's the chances that someone's going to try to steal this thing while it's at my house? Um, because now you're agreeing to help protect something that belongs to your neighbor. Verse 9, any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, 
a donkey, a sheep, or clothing or for any kind of lost thing which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whomever the judges condemn shall play, pay double to his neighbor. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or an animal to keep, and it dies, is hurt or driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both, that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and he shall not make it good. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence. So, you know, if a, the wolves come in and tear apart the sheep that you had grazing in your pasture and they belong to your neighbor, you bring the evidence and say, look, this is what happened to it. I did not sell them at the market for, it, for gain. So if it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence and he shall not make good what was torn. Verse 14, if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came for its hire. So this is, a, this is an interesting thing. If I, if I asked you to come help me with something and you bring your vehicle over and the vehicle breaks down while you're driving it, then according to this, that's on you. You have to fix it. But if I say, can I borrow your vehicle, and I'm taking your vehicle somewhere, and then it breaks down, then it's on me. I have to fix it. And so it's just simple things like this. You say, now, we could always look for all the loopholes, right? Because that's what we talked about earlier. But the part of this that I thought was important for us is to understand that there really is something that you're responsible for, and there's something that I'm responsible for. And what is that, and how does it work? Well, We could talk about all these things. And I wanted to just go back to that little piece in verse two, where it says, if the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. So this is the picture where, you know, you're, at, you're in bed sleeping. You hear someone breaking in. You have no idea what's going on. You grab your gun. You, you yell through the door and they are breaking in and you shoot and you kill them. And now, according to this, there is no guilt for his bloodshed. And incidentally, according to Colorado law and according to almost every law in America, they agree. If someone was breaking into your house and you felt threatened and you kill them, you're not guilty. You don't have to stand trial. Now, they will double-check a few things. In a few states, they, they, they ask the question, could you reasonably have gotten out of your house to a different safe place? Um, but most of that has now been taken, care, taken out of the... The, the law discussions in America. But we call it now the castle doctrine, more or less. And it's the idea, so back in 1628, Sir Edward Coke was writing the Institutes of the Laws of England. And he says, for a man's house is his castle. And then he says something in Latin, which means, and each man's house is his safe refuge. I don't read the Latin part. Um, <laughs> and then he says, and so then in 1763, the prime minister, William Pitt, says the poorest man may in his cottage bid defiance to all the force of the crown. It may be frail. Its roof may shake. The wind may blow through it. The storm may enter it. The rain may enter in. But the king of England cannot enter. And so they're, they're taking this idea that your house is your responsibility. This is your place. And so it comes from this because they're saying, if this is your house and a thief is breaking in and while he's coming in, you're just protecting yourself. 
He shouldn't be there. So he has done the wrong. We had recently had this happen um, with a catalytic converter theft where someone was stealing a catalytic converter and he got shot and killed. And the family of the person that got shot and killed got really mad at the people who shot and killed him saying, why, you know, he still had a lot of life left to live. And they never once said, why was he doing this? Why was he on this wrong path? And so this is, a, this is a question that when someone is entering into steel, he's making bad decisions. He has taken his life into his own hands. And so when I went and looked at the castle doctrine just to see where people thought it came from, they were like, well, it's all the way back into England, or, you know, old common law. It goes back to the Roman Republic law. And so you look and it's been around a long time. And well, it's here too. And much law that we have today, even uh, in in anything that's written, is heavily influenced by this. There is something interesting about the other laws that were written about the same time as the law of, you know, from, from our perspective, about the same time. And it's this. This law cares about the individual and cares about the downtrodden and actually looks for restoration. Most other laws that were written were basically a, here's the offense and here's what you do to the person. Here's the offense, here's what you do to the perpetrator. This cares for the person. And so if you read through the law of Moses and you read through all of this, you start understanding, if you're looking for it, you see these little twists and these little moments, the term, a phrase where you understand that God actually cares for the people. He actually cares. He's not just trying to say, well, here's the justice, cold hard as it is, but he's trying to actually take care of his people and get them to take care of each other and to get them to think in terms of what am I responsible for and am I taking care of it? And so if a man's house is his castle and you can take, and this is the king of England himself cannot enter in, that means that whatever happens in your house, you're responsible for that. And so if you think in those terms, and then you go look at like in Joshua 24, uh, 14 and 15, and you see Joshua making a speech, it suddenly rings a little bit different when you think of how in the law, you're responsible for what happens in your house. The rabbi is not responsible. The, uh, nobody else in town is responsible. You are responsible for what happens in your house. And no one else is supposed to be coming into this house of yours unless you invite them there. And there's other laws that have to do with what happens in your house. Uh, Joshua 24, uh, verse 14. Joshua is speaking to the people. He says, now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so if I think about this in terms of what like uh, William Pitt was saying, it's like I, Joshua is saying, I'm going to serve the Lord in my house. And none of you is allowed to come in here and remove this God that I'm, you cannot make me not serve God because I'm doing it in my house. But he's also speaking to them saying, look, I understand you might have smuggled in an idol into your house. And I cannot come in and physically remove every idol in everyone's house. This is what's being said to us as well. I cannot come and remove an idol from your heart, from your house. I cannot come to your house and force you to be a Christian. 
We tried this during the Crusades. We tried this during the, the, uh, at the beginning of the Dark Ages when the, 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 the generals would come into places like Germany. What is Germany today now? Uh, at the time, it was, it was still called other things. The Germanic lands were called something else. But they would come in and they would literally defeat the local emperor, um, king or general and they would say, okay, so here's the deal. Everyone's going to believe in Jesus and be baptized or we're going to kill you. And so they would have mass amounts of people added to Christendom in a day or two. But that was not the heart of God. Because it comes back to this, as for me and my house, I'm going to serve God. What are you going to do? You're responsible for you. You're responsible for what happens in your house. And so it puts a lot of, it explains a lot when you think about Jesus, when he's saying, you know, they accused him of being, um, of having Beelzebub because he'd cast out a demon. And so Jesus says, if, if I did this, if Satan did this through, and cast out Satan, I mean, a house divided cannot stand. And he starts talking and he gives this example. He says, you know, if you're, if you, if, if, if the strong man is in the house and you're trying to break into the house, you have to first bind the strong man. And in Luke, he keeps going with this thing and he says, if you, know, if you cast out the demon that's in a house and is cleaned and swept and you don't do anything else into that house, and then the demon goes out and he finds seven other spirits that are worse than himself. And he comes back and he looks at into the house and says, look, it's empty, clean and swept. And he comes back in. And the last end of that man is worse than the first. Okay, so a lot of times when we look at that from our modern time, we're like, well, what's going on here? Well, here's part of what's happening is that there is a certain level to which in all generations, people have said, can you help me? I've got a problem. And so I'm, I'm being afflicted by this demon. I'm, I need help. I need to be, uh, you know, and so whether it's someone saying, I want to be, uh, you know, I need this demon cast out or I, in some way I need to be helped. And so someone else comes and says, I'll clean your house for you. And they take things out. If you yourself don't take a stand and say, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. This is my house. And, and the enemy is not coming in here to steal things from me. If you don't take that stand, then it doesn't matter who comes and casts a demon out of you. And this is the thing with Christ. When he came and he cast out demons out of people, it didn't end there. They still now had to make a decision. Are they going to follow Jesus or not? Will they follow Christ? Because if they don't decide to follow Christ, it's just a clean and swept house. And so this is important for us in the spiritual realm to say, well, what am I responsible for? Because my house, me, this is one thing. Okay, then in a physical sense, I look at my house, my wife and family in our house, and I say, well, what happens in our house? And then we look on a wider sense as a community and say, well, what is ours to do? And, and there's different things at each level of the way. But what one of the things that it comes down to is simply this, and it's what Joshua was saying, is for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve him. That is not a decision I can make for you. That is not a decision you can make for someone else. You can pray for other people. You can talk with other people. You can encourage other people. You can ask them, what are you serving? And I've asked that question. I said, you know, it comes down to this, young man. Are you going to choose who, what happens in your life? Or are you going to let Christ dictate what happens in your life? And in a few instances, I've had a young person tell me, well, right now it's me. I want to be in charge of me. And I still have things I want to do. And as long as that's the case, then I cannot force you to follow Christ. 
But if you're willing and you're saying, I want to follow Jesus, then I can say, okay, here are some ways that what you can do. You can clean your house in such a way so that the enemy doesn't just keep coming in and stealing from you. You can actually kill the enemy and before God, he says, that's right, do that. Take care of the enemy that's trying to break in and steal from your house. Here comes the enemy trying to kill, steal, and destroy. You take on the full armor of God and you take out that enemy. You can do that. I can't always do it for you. I, can't stand, I can sit in my house and I can pray for you. I can actually pray spiritual warfare for you. But you have to pray for yourself. And you can say, no, I resist the enemy, no, in the name of Jesus, you may not come in here. You can say that. Sometimes you need help. Sometimes you need a friend to come alongside you and walk with you as you clean house. That's why we have, you know, these, there's, there's prayer warriors, there's people who understand spiritual warfare better uh, because they've practiced it longer. Uh, we have people who are counselors who can walk with you and say, look, right here, right now, right here, this is how you're opening that door. And until, so we need to work on figuring out how you can close that door. And if you can learn how to close that door, your life will be better because you'll be protected from the things that come in that door. And so a counselor walks with us and says, okay, look over here, this right here. Whenever you start thinking and saying these things, you're literally opening the door for these things to come in. And then you feel like a victim because it's happening again, but let's deal with this. And so a counselor can walk with you and help you. And this is what the brotherhood and fellowship does as well. We help each other. And so if I share a testimony and say, you know, I discovered that the enemy was stealing from me in this way, and you're listening to me going, oh, I've done that. And I'm experiencing those problems. So you mean I could stop, I could close that, I could change my life by closing that, okay. So I can inspire you. I can give you an example but it's very necessary for each of us to take responsibility for our own life and to protect it. And so this is a somewhat of a wide-ranging message today, purely from the fact that when you're going through uh, Exodus, I feel like every one of these commands, we could, we could take them apart ad nauseum and try to figure out what all is possible in here to talk about, but I don't want to do that. I want to keep moving through them. And so we have a few more uh, next week, and then I think... Uh, we'll be doing some big looking at the tabernacle and so on and so forth soon. And then we're coming to, also coming to the time of Advent and, and Christmas. And so I know that we'll be bringing in the Advent candles and talking about that with the children. Um, I'm not sure if the messages are going to continue through Exodus or if we're going to do something different for that season or not, but we're going to talk about that and pray about it. But my heart in looking at Exodus and just coming here is it does make us talk about things that I might never otherwise talk about. Like I might never even have thought about talking about slavery um, like I did last week or other things, except for the fact that we're going through Exodus. And so today, the way I looked at this is I, I just called it my house for the simple reason that it's about my responsibility. It's about how do I respond to God? What am I responsible for? And so I'm gonna pray for us and then uh, we'll, we'll show the video from Skit Guys, and then Ralph will come and close out for us, and then we'll go to music. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you have given each of us a, an opportunity and a place to respond to you. When I think of the, like David saying in Psalm 18 that you have lifted him out of the miry clay, you've put his feet in a wide place. Lord, you've put our feet in a place where we can actually turn to you and respond to you. 
And so, Father, I pray for each of us that we would take seriously the fact that you've given us something that is ours, that is our responsibility. And that from that place, we would understand that we can resist the enemy, that we can make decisions. And no matter what any king in the land says, we can turn and say, I will serve the Lord Christ. I will serve Jesus, that I belong to God himself. I am not, I do not belong to a king. A king and no government, no kingdom of this earth can tell us that we cannot serve Christ because we have been given that as a gift of heaven that it is ours to choose whom we will serve. And Lord, we choose to serve you. And so Father, we do ask for us, for our houses, that you would protect us spiritually, physically, emotionally from the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil and that we would be able to take responsibility and to stop the attacks of the enemy and to allow Christ to rule and reign in all the areas you've given us. And Father, as we go into Thanksgiving this week, I do ask that you'd be with each of us, that we'd be able to love our friends, love our neighbors, love our family, and that this would be a a season of redemption and redeeming the broken things, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.